In a few minutes, we will read uh, Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. If you'd like to go ahead and find your way there, Nehemiah 4, 1 through 9. It's my desire that in this passage of Scripture, in these nine verses, we will learn much about opposition and how it is that we can rightly handle opposition when it comes our way. I don't know if you've ever faced opposition in your life or not, but I've personally noticed that oftentimes our Christian witness goes out the window when we are met with opposition. Often it seems like when opposition comes, the things that we stand for, we suddenly no longer stand for. For example, often you'll hear people declare they stand for peace and they that all seems fine and great until opposition comes and suddenly they are no longer standing for peace. They're ready to fight because opposition came their way. The question for us should be, how do we rightly handle opposition when it comes our way? In other words, when someone opposes us or someone opposes our idea or whatever it might be, how should we then respond to that opposition? When Igor Sikorsky was 12, his parents told him that competent authorities had already proved human flight impossible. He went on to build the first helicopter in his American plant. He posted this sign. According to recognized aerotechnical tests, the bumblebee cannot fly because of the shape and weight of his body in relation to the total wing area. The bumblebee does not know this, so he goes ahead and flies anyway. I believe that Nehemiah would have loved that sign because he knew all about opposition. Nehemiah and the people in Jerusalem faced a lot of opposition in their work to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. They were in the center of the will of God, but that did not mean that the task that they were doing would be easy. It took dedication. It took determination and great attention to detail. To the human eye, it would seem impossible. But they had divine favor from above, and that would help propel them to success. Never, ever underestimate what God can do through His people. No matter how poor your circumstances may seem, we can't underestimate what God can do through His people. Will you please stand with me out of respect for the Word of God as we read Nehemiah chapter 4 verses 1 through 9. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah, the Ammonite, was beside him and he said, Yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunts on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt 
And let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. And so we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the wall of Jerusalem was going forward, and that breaches were being or were beginning to be closed, they were angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it, in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. May we learn today how it is that we can face opposition when it comes our way may we learn from your word not because of great um, preaching but because your word pierces our heart in our lives may we apply your word to our lives today may our hearts be in the work that we're doing for you i pray this in the name of jesus christ amen you may be seated the apostle paul said that it was through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God in Acts chapter 14 verse 22 knowing the reality of spiritual opposition beforehand as we run the race that's set before us should help us avoid becoming too discouraged or drawing false conclusions and thinking that opposition is a sign of God's disapproval of us and that we should somehow change course often there are times that we draw the conclusion that lack of opposition certainly means God's favor when in fact the opposite can be true now that the rebuilding had begun Nehemiah has this task of reassuring these builders that the opposition that they are facing was nothing more than what they should expect beyond that they should take comfort in opposition because it meant that there was evidence that they were doing a good thing so let's get into this message and see what we can learn first i want us to learn that there was adversity there was adversity we must understand that the progress of god's people will anger the enemy this is always the case satan will always endeavor to destroy anything good that god's people try to accomplish now, if you, if you were paying attention when I was on my little mini vacation, I, I said, brace yourselves because there's A.W. Tozer quotes coming because I bought a book by A.W. Tozer and it's all his famous quotes. So here's one of those quotes from that book. This is what A.W. Tozer said. Satan will never cease to make war on the man-child and the soul in which dwells the spirit of Christ will continue to be the target of his tax. And what Tozer's saying is, as long as you live as a Christian, Satan will attack you. So be ready. Listen, Nehemiah's faced with adversity. Satan opposed everything that Nehemiah's trying to accomplish. And you better believe that if you're trying to ever accomplish anything significant for the kingdom of God, Satan will stand in opposition to you and there will be adversity. So let's look at this adversity and how Nehemiah handles it. First, we see their furious aggression. 
their furious aggression. Make no mistake about it, anger was the root cause of Sanballat's aggression. We were first introduced to Sanballat back in Nehemiah chapter 2 where he was all upset over Nehemiah's concern for the people of God and it seems that once the work begins, Sanballat's filled with rage and indignation. When it says he was angry, it means to burn emotionally. Sanballat was furious with anger and aggression. If you've ever heard the expression, um, that makes my blood boil. You ever hear that? Well, that just makes my blood boil. This was how Sanballat felt. His blood boiled in hatred towards God's people. And church, this is what we should expect from the enemy. The more you accomplish for the work of God, the more angry Satan becomes. The kind of anger and rage that Sanballat has finds its roots in the pit of hell. I like what Warren Wiersbe says in his commentary on Nehemiah. He says, Opposition is not only an evidence that God is blessing, but it is also an opportunity for us to grow. The difficulties that came to the work brought out the best in Nehemiah and his people. Satan wanted to use these problems as weapons to destroy the work, but God used them as tools to build his people. The fact is, if you're not doing anything for God, then why would Satan bother with you? He wouldn't. It has been said this, the devil doesn't kick a dead horse. Christian, you should never be surprised or caught off guard when opposition comes because you should expect it. That means you should be doing stuff for the Lord that you expect the enemy to attack you because he hates God's work and he hates God's people. This is exactly what Jesus said. He said, if the world hates you, right? Know that the world hated me first. In John 15, 18. And he said, do not marvel if the world hates you. In 1 John 3, 13. The Christian will face opposition in their work for the Lord if you are committed to building the kingdom of God. And then the enemy's wrath will be stirred and you better expect trouble. Peter said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Paul said, We are troubled on every side in 2 Corinthians 4.8. If you're committed to serving God, then adversity will not be uncommon. And you better know that Satan will oppose you. But take courage. We do not have to walk around fearful and floundering because of the evil one. Because God's people are overcomers. Because greater is he that's in you than he that is in the world. And so we see their furious aggression. Now let's notice their false assertions. They're false assertions. The enemy began with mocking and laughter. Their goal was to discourage and demean them. There was no mercy being shown. They wanted to demoralize the people and so they so they would just quit. The goal is intimidation. We've seen this kind of stuff before, right? We see it even today. We especially see it during political debates and etc. There are intense propaganda campaigns launched, except this one is trying to stop the work of God from going forward. British critic and author Thomas Carlyle called ridicule the language of the devil. 
Some people who can stand bravely when they are shot at will collapse when they are laughed at. What makes it worse is Sanballat has an audience. We're told that he says uh, this in the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria. It is rare for the enemy to show up alone. And in this case of these workers, it would certainly appear as though everyone is against them. Sanballat asks five questions in his attack, right? He says, what are these feeble Jews doing? Super encouraging. Why are these feeble? Look at these guys. It's a personal attack, right? It's calling them feeble. The word means weak and deficient of physical strength. Personal attack saying, you're too weak and feeble to even finish the work you've started. Secondly, he says, will they restore for themselves? This is an attack on the process. They did not think the work was strong enough to protect them from an invading army. The insinuation is that they will never be able to protect themselves against the enemy. Thirdly, he says, will they sacrifice? This is mocking God's providence. It's implying that prayer and worship are not going to help them, and they will not get to the point where they can offer sacrifices to God again. Fourthly, he asks, will they finish up in a day? Mocking their perception. The implication is that they have no clue how difficult the work really is. There's no way it will be accomplished in a day or in a few days. And it's hard, grueling work that's going to take a long time. They were trying to be to discourage them from the task at hand. Then he says, Will they revive the stones out of heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? This is mocking God's provision. What do they even have to work with? Do they really think they're going to build something out of all this garbage? The material they had was insufficient for the task at hand, is what they were saying. We cannot allow false assertions and the mocking of the lost world to keep you from building the kingdom of God. You can't allow it. Now let's see their foolish assumption. Verse 3. Tobiah joins in on the action, right? He says, If a fox jumped up on that wall, it would fall down. How ignorant is that? Sounds like Tobiah doesn't have a whole lot of brain power. In fact, a little later on, He's going to be proven wrong. All of his mockery and ridicule is designed to discourage the people of God. Let me just say that often Christian leaders find themselves on the receiving end of such ridicule, especially from the enemy. It kind of goes with the territory, I guess. I've I've said it before, but if you can't handle criticism, then don't be a leader. Because you will be criticized all the time. No leader is exempt from criticism. The question is, how do you react to that criticism? Behind Sanballat was Satan. And ridicule is Satan's language. We must keep in mind that behind all mockery, behind all scorn, is the devil himself. Scripture teaches us that. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, Ephesians 6.12. Sanballat was a pawn of Satan. 
When God's people are at work, Satan sets out to hinder the work. Today, the enemy tries to discourage the people of God in the exact same way. He will talk about your feeble little attempts and, and your inability to get the job done. And, oh, you can't do anything for the Lord. Or, oh, you're such a small little church. You can't have an impact on the kingdom of God, Alan Redpath wrote. When the Christian dares to say that the only hope of the world is in the gospel of God's redeeming grace, the whole force of modern civilization and education lines up against him and says, you with your feeble little prayer meetings, you with your silly little plan of getting people converted one by one, how can that possibly stand alongside our great socializing economic program in which a whole world can be revolutionized in a few years. You feeble little lot. The world judges everything by size, by headlines, by imposing schemes, by vast advertisements, and it pours content on the feeble little flock of the people of God. You have no intellect. You are out of date. You have no money. You have no status. If you're going to try to do anything for God, you better be ready. There will be opposition. And plenty of it. And there will be criticism. And if you can't handle it, you will struggle to do anything for the Lord. Secondly, I want us to see prayer in the midst of adversity. Prayer in the midst of adversity. Nehemiah is being viciously attacked. But he doesn't come out and retaliate in anger. Instead, he looks above the opposition. If we seek revenge, we will only poison our spirit and lose sight of what God calls us to do. It was prayer that brought Nehemiah to Jerusalem in the first place. And now, in the face of serious opposition, Nehemiah prays and asks God for help. It almost seems like an interruption, doesn't it? As we're reading along, and then suddenly just says, Hear our God, for we are despised. The cry of prayer. Let's see the cry of prayer. Nehemiah says, Hear our God, for we are despised. We can't allow the enemy's attacks to sidetrack us. We must stay on target. God has given us work to do and we can't waste our time trying to get even with the enemy. We must instead trust that in the hands of God knowing that God will take care of it. Nehemiah was instantly prepared for prayer. And prayer ought to be our first response. We're instructed to pray all through scripture, right? Men ought always to pray. Luke 18.1 Pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. Praying always with all prayer and supplication, Ephesians 6, 18. Continue in prayer, Colossians 4, 2. Continuing instant in prayer, Romans 12, 12. Prayer is one of the most practical and powerful tools that we have in our arsenal as Christians. However, if we don't use it, it's not helpful. It does you no good to have a tool you'll never use. It's amazing how many people have a little to no prayer life. And it's a travesty when God's people do not pray. 
It seems to me that perhaps prayer is a most neglected privilege of the church. Moreover, as for me, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and right way, 1 Samuel 12, 23. There's so much that can be accomplished by prayer. Again, prayer does not bend God's will to us, but it does align us with God's will. We are told the effectual and fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, James 5.16. God honors believing prayer. When we go to God in prayer, we are expressing our dependence on God, and and we are telling Him that we need Him in order to accomplish anything. Prayer is the avenue whereby we see God at work. R.A. Torrey said this, Prayer is the key that opens wide the inexhaustible storehouse of divine grace and power. There's only one limit to what prayer can do, and that is what God can do. Torrey said of Moody that he was a far greater prayer than a preacher. Time and time again he was confronted by obstacles that seemed insurmountable, but he always knew the way to surmount and overcome all difficulties. He knew the way to bring to pass anything that needed to be brought to pass. It was prayer. Charles Trumbull says this, Prayer is releasing the energies of God, for prayer is asking God to do what we cannot do. We tap into great power in prayer. God will accomplish so much to a person who will pray when a person fails to pray and thinks that they're going to accomplish so much on their own by their own strength. That person is a spiritual failure and they will accomplish little, if anything, for the kingdom of God. So we've, we've seen this cry of prayer. Now let's see the content of that prayer. He cries to God for prayer, but what's the content of it? This prayer is what's called an impeccatory prayer. And what that means is it's a prayer that calls down God's judgment. Before the rod of despair sets in, Nehemiah wants God to act and prevent it. It is a prayer that God will come down now, at this very moment, and that God will demonstrate His sovereignty over these enemies of the Jews. Some people look at this prayer and they think, well, how unchristian of Nehemiah. How vindictive. I mean, did you read this prayer? I mean, did you see what he says? Turn back their taunt on their own heads. Let them be plundered in a land where they are captives. Don't even cover their guilt. Let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. That seems pretty serious. How unchristian of Nehemiah. How vindictive. Nehemiah appears to be a bully, employing religious justification for questionable ethical decisions. And so what happens is people will relegate this to an Old Testament kind of thing. They'll say, well, well, that's just the Old Testament. And that's unacceptable by the standards of Jesus. The standards that Jesus has given us to love our neighbor and even love our enemies. However, let's be clear, this is a prayer for justice amid a sinful situation. Just because our modern culture has an ambivalent response 
to morality and they look at this prayer as vengeful rather than righteous, it's absolutely meaningless. And furthermore, just because few of us can hear prayers calling for the judgment of God to come down on God's enemies without cringing at what we perceive to be an assumed uh, and, and, and assumed to be a self-righteous prayer is absolutely meaningless. To our Western ears, this has all the makings of some sort of holy jihad or something like that, but that is only a sign of our culture and relativism. J.I. Packer puts it this way. The key principle here is stated in Psalm 139, 21 and 22, where it says, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. The nearer we come to this state of mind, which is a spinoff from the desire that God's will be done, His kingdom come, and His name be hallowed and glorified above everything else, the less problem we will have with vengeance prayers. This is not a prayer from Nehemiah for personal vengeance. It's a prayer for God to do something. And if we have a problem with God taking vengeance out on His enemies, then you've adopted a view of God that has nothing to do with the Bible. So then, your problem is not with the prayer. Your problem is with the Bible. Hear the enemies of God by their scorn and opposition are hindering the work of God. Therefore, it had to be met with the justice of God. So we've seen their adversity, and there was a prayer in the midst of adversity. Now, let's look at the priority in adversity. If, if anyone's going to lead, they must understand what the priority is. Just because you face opposition and adversity does not mean that you call it quits and give in. There must be a determined resolve. There must be a priority. First notice that progress continues. Progress continues. You have to love the fact that despite all of this opposition, Nehemiah didn't lose sight of his calling. Nehemiah did not stop the work and pray. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say anywhere that Nehemiah stopped the work and they started to pray. Instead, He worked and prayed. One commentator writes this, The open attack with a barrage of words was worth trying. It is the enemy's oldest weapon, and in the form of ridicule, it needs no factual ammunition, not even argument. On this occasion, the morale which is attacked was too well-founded to be undermined. The words stung, but they produced not a quiver of indecision, only indignation. All of the pressure and all of the opposition and all this teasing and jeering and making fun of and oh, a fox jumps up on your wall, it's going to fall over. All of that came to nothing because the Lord intervened and the Lord filled their hearts with energy and commitment to building no matter what. The work remained the priority. You have to love what Nehemiah said. You, you just have to love it because he says, so we built the wall. That's what he says in verse 6. He does a prayer and then he says, so we built the wall. 
This, this is what we did. We built the wall. What an encouraging verse. In spite of opposition, the work moves forward. As followers of Christ, we must remain focused on the priority. Not only does progress continue, but we see the people's commitment. Nehemiah tells us that the people had a mind to work. This is where the rubber meets the road. Notice it does not say. The people had a mind to talk about the work. Or the people had a mind to call a special called business meeting about the work that needed to proceed. It doesn't say that. It doesn't even say that so the people had a mind to fellowship together. There are times that God's people put too much time into everything else and not enough time into working. We are so often guilty of spending so much time and energy on things that do not progress the work of God. Yes, planning is important. Yes, talking about things are an essential part of building. But at some point, Christian, we must get to work. These people had a mind to work. The word mind here speaks of the heart and the will. The heart is the innermost part of life. It is the decision-making center of life. It is the seat of the passions and the source of motives. The heart is the place where thoughts are conceived. It is the center of conscience and the place where life makes up its mind. And out of the heart are the issues of life. Keep your heart with all vigilance. For from it flows the springs of life, Proverbs 4.23. You see what God is saying? That our heart and our life are connected. A spring is a water supply, and the issues of life speak of what comes out of the well. And when you go to a well to get water, whatever is in that well, it's what comes up in your bucket. If the water in the well is good, then this is what is in the bucket. If the water in the well is bad, then when you draw up the bucket, you will have bad water. The same principle is true of life. Whatever is in your heart comes out in your life. So when it says they had a mind to work, it's like saying they had a heart. It's, it's talking about their heart. It's telling us that God's work was a heart matter to them. It was not just some sort of mundane thing that occupied their minds that they were putting up with. Oh, we got to build the wall. Then get your heart in it. Four. Let's see the progression of adversity. The progression of adversity. Adversity in this life is not going to go away. Living the Christian life is not a fairy tale. Adversity is something that we will and are going to have to deal with. And as long as people have a mind to work for the kingdom of God, you better believe there will be those who have a mind to oppose them. But we must persevere, even in the midst of persecution. So let's look at the progression of this adversity. First, the consorting wretches. Look at verse 7. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard, stop right there. Notice we now have the Ashdodites joining in on the alliance against 
Jerusalem. Ashdod was a former Philistine city located west of Jerusalem. So now we see that the enemy is growing in numbers. A common enemy and a common cause brought these groups together to stop the work of the walls of Jerusalem. The city is now surrounded by enemies. To the north was Sanballat and the Samaritans. To the east, Tobiah and the Ammonites. To the south, Geshem and the Arabs. And to the west, the Ashdodites. Listen, these nations do not did not always get along, but they had one thing in common, and that was their hatred for Israel. And to this day, there is much strife among Muslims nations about uh, their united desire to destroy Israel. Jerusalem is surrounded by enemies who seek to destroy them. However, one day Jesus will return and all things will be settled. They're consorting together. And then we see the continuing work. What exactly had the enemy heard? They heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were being beginning to be closed and they were, it says, very angry. The progress of the work was turning out to be the opposite of what the enemy had predicted. And they're in a state of panic. These feeble, weak, little Jews were accomplishing the impossible and they were doing it in a short amount of time and the enemy is very angry. And when we're doing work for the Lord and the enemy becomes comes against us and we just keep on working, then the enemy goes from being angry to being very angry like it says. The enemy can't stand kingdom work. And then we see the conspiring warriors. Look at verse 8. They all plotted. They conspired together. At first they were satisfied to sit back and mock and ridicule God's people, but now something had to be done. And now they're conspiring and plotting together to fight against Jerusalem. They're going to rise up against the workers in open warfare. The enemies have joined forces to attack Nehemiah and the workers, and now that the enemies have joined forces and are coming against Jews, what will Nehemiah do? That's a good question. Because that's when we see the constant watch. The constant watch. Nehemiah's response to the to the attack that was coming against him and the Jews was to do something that seems um, mutually exclusive. First, they prayed, and then they set up a guard. Now don't think that prayer is some sort of magic cure-all because prayer is not. Prayer does not mean that you ignore the enemy or pretend like the enemy does not exist. If a report came into our church this morning that we needed to stay inside because there were a violent criminal on the loose around our building, would you casually stroll out to your car in a normal fashion like, do-do-do-do-do, I don't really care? Probably not. Would you let your kids run around out of your sight? Probably not. Not Now, if you had the ability, you would, you would arm yourself and you would be on guard for fear that someone might come in at any moment. Yet Christians are oblivious to the dangers that come from the adversary. Who's the devil? Whose scripture says he's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking who he can devour. And we casually stroll into the world 
without putting on the full armor of God as found in Ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 through 20. Two, many Christians fill their minds with crud. They allow their kids to watch garbage on TV and we don't teach our children the things of God and we wonder why we have family problems. Even more so, we go out and fill our minds with theological error. We never examine to see if what we are listening to and hearing is in line with the scripture and then we try to bring that same trash into the church and peddle it off as something biblical. No wonder our churches have a family problem because we're not on guard. We don't care. We say, oh, well, whatever. Whatever goes, goes. And if you don't want to fall victim to the enemy, then you need a defense against him in advance. You need to block your opportunities for moral filth in your life and home. You need to spend time each day saturating your mind with the Word of God and block your mind from theological error. You need to have brothers and sisters in Christ who can rally with you against the enemy when he comes and attacks. To be oblivious to the enemy is to be vulnerable. Don't be oblivious. I want to close with this this morning. This message dealt with how to handle opposition rightly. We noticed that there was adversity, that there was prayer in the midst of that adversity, and that people refused to let adversity keep them from work. We must realize that pacifism in the face of adversity is not an option. We will see next week that something of the taunts of these enemies has gotten to them. Their energy begins to dissipate. Their zeal is fleeting. And unless Nehemiah does something... The rot will spread like a crippling and debilitating cancer throughout the whole city. In the movie The Two Towers, the second adaptation of J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, there's a scene that depicts the morale among the people of Helm's Deep. There are tiny little demoralized people that are facing 10,000 bloodthirsty warriors. As the inevitability of the battle draws near, we have scenes depicting young men boys in reality, facing the prospects of having to go to war and almost certain death. They're trying on armor and weapons that are too big for their frail, underdeveloped little bodies. And everywhere you look, there's a stench of defeat and death. Among them walks Aragorn, the king apparent, with two friends, the dwarf Gimli and the elf Legolas. Aragorn points to the pitiful sight of men and boys around him in evident fear and says, Farmers, farriers, stable boys, they are no soldiers. Most have seen too many winters. Gimli responds and Legolas adds, or too few. It's a scene of hopelessness and despair. Earlier, Aragorn had tried to rebuke the king, Theoden, as he prepared for battle, the Battle of Hornbug. In response to Theoden's, Theoden's words that the crops would be regrown, Aragon says this, They do not come to destroy crops. They come to destroy the world of men. Theoden angrily pulls him aside and says, What would you have me do? Look at them. Their courage hangs by a thread. If this is to be our end, I would have them make such an end as to be worthy of remembrance church listen carefully Satan 
always opposes anything for the kingdom of God. The Bible nowhere paints a picture of a trouble-free life. That's what you have in heaven. It's not what you have on earth. We live in a world that is ravaged by sin. And Satan prowls around. And he is looking to devour someone. So you better expect trouble. And when we have passages like this one in Nehemiah, so that we, so that you and I, as followers of Christ, can be forewarned of the effects of the enemy, of the adversary, as he comes and opposes us. And we can expect adversity, and at times it will come with a degree of personal intensity that causes you to be greatly alarmed. Listen, it is nothing new. Satan's arsenal, though it may be terrifying, it is not unlimited. In fact, sometimes Satan is very predictable. Understand that the grace of our Lord is more than able to meet anything that Satan throws at you. We must refuse to underestimate the importance and the value of prayer. Not only did Nehemiah engage in prayer, but the whole community engaged in prayer in the face of impending trouble. What did they pray for? Did they pray for the trouble to go away? Then the prayer was not answered. In the way that they expected, we must remind ourselves that God is all wise and what He does or does not do at times in response to our request may seem like He's saying no. Just remember, that could be because of our dullness. What appeared to be the good thing Maybe it wasn't the best thing, at least for us. Our ability to make any decision, any decision, about what is best for us is often formulated with less than pure motives. To be blunt, we are prone to being selfish, and we ask God to intervene into our situation, often times for selfish motives. God's answers help us refocus and sometimes they are directed to teach us that what we've asked for was not in fact the best thing at all. And that's a hard pill to swallow, isn't it? When God says no, when you ask God for something, when you ask God for it to be warm and it snows, that's a hard pill to swallow. It feels like a kick in the teeth. Or like when you get punched in the gut. If you've ever, have you ever had the wind knocked out of you and you, you can't breathe and you're gasping for air? And sometimes we're left angry and bitter and even suspicious of God. We hear about this all the time. God, I prayed that my mom would not die. Or God, I prayed for, uh, that the cancer would be gotten rid of. Or God, I prayed that you would heal so and so. And when God says no, we get angry at God. Trouble didn't disappear for the Jews. And prayers that may very well have, have asked God to take away their troubles soon turn into requests for strength and tenacity. Their prayer is, God, come down and wipe these people out. That prayer changes. Don't you see that sometimes instead of praying for a way out of your troubles 
or for your troubles to end, sometimes you need to pray to endure. Sometimes you got to just say, God, I hate this. Help me endure and not lose hope in you. Sometimes that's the prayer you got to pray. Look at how Nehemiah describes the scene. In the end, people are praying and setting guards to protect them through day and night shifts. This avoids two pitfalls. First, it prevents the excuse that the urgency of their need makes collective corporate prayer impossible. And it avoids a tendency to replace action with prayer alone. The saying is, if we are too busy to pray, then we're too busy. But prayer can also become a substitute for action and duty. We need to pray and we need to work. And in that order... You need to pray, then you need to work in that order. Pray, commit yourself to the cause of Christ, then get busy. Pray, Lord, help me today to share the gospel with someone, then go out and do it. Lord, help me to live a life that is filled with your honor and glory, then go out and live it. Lord, help me to accomplish this by your strength, then go out and accomplish it. Lord, help me to be sustained during this trouble and during this hard time, and then go out and do it. You pray, then you work. Pray first, then work. That's the step you take. And you're... And you, And it's formed by the guiding hand of God. Pray first and keep from panicking when the smell of battle is upon you. Because the minute you call down on the power of God, the enemy will come and attack. And you better be battle ready. So I ask you, church, what troubles are you facing today? What hardships and struggles have come your way? How is Satan attacking you this week, this day, this month, this year? Will you heed the lesson? Will you see the value of collective prayer? Will you pray and allow God to guide you to do the needful things in ways that bring Him glory? In other words, what I'm saying to you, it's time to pray and get busy. Let's close a prayer.